I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this webinar uh, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jeff Sickinga. I'm the executive director of the Ashbrook Center. We are an independent educational center located at Ashland University, and it's our mission at, at Ashbrook to help to educate our fellow Americans, whether those are students, teachers, or citizens, in the history and founding principles of this country. And it's a thing, it's an enterprise, it's a task that we think is desperately needed today. We think there's a real crisis in civic education. Too many Americans, especially young people, don't know the basic facts of our shared history and, and even more uh, disturbingly, don't understand the fundamental principles of our country and why they deserve our respect. So we offer these kind of programs, including this webinar, as part of our mission to help educate our fellow Americans in the history and principles of our country. And we really think as an educational center that education is not about indoctrination, definitely not, not even about just information, but about discovering the truth. And as I always like to say, we follow Aristotle's old maxim that all people by nature desire to know, and we add, but they don't wanna be told. They wanna discover it for themselves. And we found that the best way to discover for yourself is through conversation. So we're gonna have a conversation today on this anniversary uh, or near anniversary of Ronald Reagan's famous speech calling on Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall, the Berlin Wall. We're gonna have a conversation today with two esteemed panelists, and I hope you all, please send us your questions, your thoughts, your comments in the Q&A button there uh, on your screen. And we will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Sometimes we get a lot of them, as you can imagine, especially on a topic like this. And so we'll try to get to as many as we can. I always apologize in advance if we're not able to get to your specific question. But as I say, we'll try to get to as many as we can. And we've got a great panel to take those questions for you today. I'm delighted to have two old friends of Ashbrook and two good friends of mine with us today, Professor Chris Burkett, he is professor of political science here at Ashland University. He's also a director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program, teaches politics here at the university, teaches for Ashbrook in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program for teachers, and also directs all kinds of seminars uh, for students and citizens around the country. And Chris is the editor of a really wonderful volume, which I wanna recommend to everyone if you don't have it already. It's called 50 Core American Documents, Required Reading for Students, Teachers, and Citizens. It's a terrific collection 
of primary sources, the kind of documents that you need to dive into to really understand this country and its history. And it's great. Chris did a wonderful job editing it for students, for teachers, for use in their classrooms, and for citizens too. So if you have children, grandchildren, friends, colleagues who need to read these great documents, including some we'll be talking about today, take a look again at that book, 50 Core American Documents. You can go to our website, ashbrook.org, and you can order it there. We're happy to send you copies. It is a wonderful collection. Chris, thank you so much for joining us and for editing that volume. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks. Um, our other panelist is Dr. Greg McBrayer. Uh, Greg is Associate Professor of Political Science. He is also uh, the Director of Citizen Programs for the Ashbrook Center, teaches in the Ashbrook Scholar Program in uh, ancient political thought, modern political thought, American politics, and he is a real specialist in the ancient political thought of one of the great followers of Socrates, a guy called Xenophon, who may or may not be known to all of you out there, but who was very famous in his day and wrote really important works on political leadership. And it's something that Greg has been studying for a long time now, what makes great leaders and drawing insight and inspiration from the ancients and from contemporary American sources as well. So Greg, thank you for joining us. And by the way, if, uh, folks, if, I, if you didn't know this already, Greg had the uh, distinction of being raised in West Berlin and was there at the time in West Berlin when Reagan gave his speech in 1987. So Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff, it's great to be here. Let me, let me start, if I can, with just a clip. If we could have Jeremy play a short clip, about just a minute or two, of Ronald Reagan's very famous speech. It's June 12th, 1987. He's at the Brandenburg Gate at the Berlin Wall, which divides West Berlin and East Berlin, the free part from the communist part. And here's what Reagan has to say. And I said, today is the 35th anniversary of that speech. Thought we should just listen to a short clip if we can, and then we'll start our conversation. Now the Soviets themselves may, in a limited way, be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, 
open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Very famous words, maybe, maybe some of the most famous words spoken by an American president in the 20th century, certainly the latter half of the 20th century. Um, and today is, as I mentioned, the 35th anniversary of Reagan's speech at the Brandenburg Gate. I just want to throw this question out to you, Chris and Greg. You know, on the one hand, that was a long time ago. And 35 years ago, and a lot has changed. You know, the Soviet Union is gone, for example, right? On the other hand, it seems like a lot of the challenges facing America right now look to me oddly like the challenges that we faced in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, when Reagan was becoming president. Um, domestic problems like inflation, serious calls and arguments about expanding the size and scope of the federal government, and a kind of loss of certainty about America's role and proper place in the world. You know, even some of the, to me, even some of the specific events, like um, Russia invading a, a neighboring country. This time it's Ukraine. In those days, of course, it was Afghanistan in 1979. And communist rulers of China aggressively asserting dominance in a part of the world. So in some ways, a lot of the challenges we face are, are eerily reminiscent of the challenges that faced America when Reagan became president. So maybe if we could just go back and to think what Reagan might think about our situation today, to understand that, and just go back and help us understand Ronald Reagan a little bit better. What was his basic philosophy, and how did he come to that? Chris, maybe I'll just throw that question to you first. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, just to make it relevant again, as you just did, and pointed out some of the things that are going on, especially with Russia today, I, I just wanted to start by saying, you know, I, it's, I sometimes get the sense that people, uh, some people in um, leadership roles today are, they seem shocked that uh, something like this could happen in the year 2022. I think we're in 2022 now, right? Uh, I lose track sometimes. And as though somehow history has moved us beyond the possibility of anybody, a player like Putin or Russia, acting in such an aggressive way. Um, but uh, I think uh, uh, what Reagan realized was that um, human beings <laughs> in some fundamental ways don't change. And there will always be the possibility of, uh, of a nation or a leader in another nation acting in a way that doesn't seem in sync with our modern, you know, uh, you know, desires and wants as far as the way people all behave. So, so Reagan had this keen sense of history and he, and he, he you know, he read a lot. I wasn't extraordinarily well-educated, but that didn't stop him from picking up and reading some really good books. And he learned a lot about history. He learned a lot about human nature. Uh, and, and what he learned, I think, from his study of, 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 of human beings is that they fundamentally, fundamentally 
would prefer liberty over a form of slavery, economic slavery, right? If given the choice between, um, between taking risks, being free to take risks uh, with the potential promise of success versus having government elites in a far off distant capital plan your life for you and provide you with a degree of safety, um, fundamentally human beings want liberty. And I think uh, Reagan really, really believed that. I, I may have, I'm, if I did, I apologize. I may have accidentally said Lincoln instead of Reagan, for, uh, uh, but, uh, but Reagan and Lincoln have this in common. Um, human beings want liberty. They want freedom. And Reagan also believed that um, the principles of the American founding, the principles, especially as they're expressed in the Declaration, um, are true. But they're but they're um, they're not just true, but they are proven to be true because they are a reflection of the way people are, the way Reagan understood people. Um, and uh, uh, you know, but again. Like Lincoln, uh, there are a lot of interesting parallels between Reagan and Lincoln. Like Lincoln, Reagan believed that people instinctively will choose freedom, and they can use that freedom responsibly. Uh, you know, there are some people arguing, well, you know, people can't be free because it leads to chaos and democracy. That was that's a long, older argument against um, against uh, liberty and and, and self government. But Reagan believed that human beings instinctively desire freedom, and they could. They are uh, capable of using that liberty well uh, and using it for good purposes, for their own good, for the good of others, for the good of their families, and for the good of society, and that they therefore are fundamentally capable of self-government. So for Reagan, this is why everything the Soviet Union represented, right, it, it, everything the Soviet Union was, it, it represented exactly the opposite of the fundamental beliefs that Reagan had with regard to to the way human beings are and, and the way um, governments ought to be. Greg, take that question because in, I think it was 1983, Ronald Reagan gave a speech to the National Association of Evangelicals. And contrary to the advice of his, uh, his, his advisors, he called the Soviet Union, they told him, please don't say this, but he said it anyways, he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Yeah. Um, talk, tell us a little bit more about Reagan's principles and sort of where he got that moral clarity. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I'll, I think I really like the way that Chris framed it positively, that humans long for freedom and, and sort of we, we can use it well and we can govern ourselves. I'll frame the same thing, just like the flip side of the same coin. Humans bristle under being told what you said at the beginning, right? Um, we all long to know, but we don't want to be told. Right. So we all want to take an active part in that conversation. People don't like being ruled. People don't like being sort of governed and turned into subjects or slaves instead of being something like citizens. And I think that what Reagan saw then, and as you alluded to in your opening remarks, we still see today. There are regimes on, on this planet that still operate very similarly to how the, the Soviet Union operated. And there's, I think that Reagan's moral clarity is seeing what's truly evil about these regimes. And you mentioned that I grew up in West Berlin as a child. And I was a child, and so I saw a lot of the politics of uh, communism, sort of A, it's secondhand, but B, through the lens of childhood. But to a child, it was crystal clear to me uh, that the regime on the other side of the wall from where I lived was evil. And where I lived wasn't perfect. You know, I was a kid, I would complain about things, but it was good. And the clearest mark for me of the evil character of the Soviet regime, and I think this is what Reagan saw as well, is that people risk their lives to leave it. 
And I can remember growing up in West Berlin, seeing markers along the wall where you had seen somebody had been killed trying to escape this evil tyranny to the free West at that time. So where did he get that from? I mean, that's a hard question. You know, Burkett mentioned his reading, but I think it was just a, I mean, it's a recognition of the way that things are. People like to be free. People don't like to be told what to do. And as you also mentioned a little bit ago, Jeff, those systems don't actually produce the intended effects that they aim to produce. Like actually humans flourish when they're free to operate on their own, when they're free to do these things for themselves. That communism, everyone always says communism sounds great in theory. And I don't think that that's necessarily even true, but even if it were true, the, the practical reality is it never actually manifests what it says that it's going to do. People live in, you know, there's food shortages, extreme poverty. You had to wait 10 years to buy a car in the Soviet Union, right? It's just, it's, it's just not the case that it can be described as anything but evil. I don't know where it all came from, but I, you know, he seems, Reagan seems to have started changing his mind about things starting in the early 50s, I think, when he saw that there were these people who were sort of sympathetic to communism around him in, in Hollywood. But he also saw the Democratic Party in some ways, I think, uh, justifiably, he thought, uh, excuse me, I think justifiably, he's, he was justified in saying this about them in some cases, maybe not but that the Democratic Party was turning more and more to becoming sympathetic uh, to socialism, if not outright capitalism, um, especially in domestic politics, but also in its accommodating policy and foreign policy uh, toward the Soviet Union. Although there are, you know, it's hard to say LBJ was, uh, was conceding to the Soviets, but there's a general tendency there. Can I, can I just jump in? Because yeah, what, what, what Greg just said was so good. I just want to, you reminded me, first of all, Reagan used to tell this joke, you reminded me your point about how, you know, cl clear the differences in the way people lived between yeah. the East and the West, and especially apparent in East Berlin and West Berlin, right? So, um, and Reagan, by the way, plays on that in this great speech, the the, the, the tear down the wall speech, but he used to tell this joke, uh, I'll, I'll try, I'll pare it down a little bit for the sake of time, that uh, there's a, a man living in the Soviet Union, and he worked and worked and worked, and you know, they didn't get money for, they got tickets for things, right? So, after 20 years of working, he had saved up enough of these tickets to be able to buy an automobile. So he went to the local bureau of automobiles. You, you heard this joke? This is one of my favorite Reagan jokes, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and uh, he said, I have all these tickets, comrade, and I get, can I get my car? And the, and the bureaucrat behind the desk said, your car will be this kind, this color, blah, 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 blah. It will be this size, and it will be delivered at exactly 1117, uh, you know, a.m., um, you know, eight years from now on this date. And, and the, and the guy looked at him and said, I, that won't work for me. And the, and the bureaucrat said, why not? And the guy said, because the plumber is coming that day. Right. So sorry, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, great. but the, but just, I mean, you know, just seeing, and again, I, I know I keep bringing Lincoln into this, but there's some similar themes here with Lincoln. Lincoln argued right. against slavery by pointing slavery. out if slavery is so good, why, why is everybody trying to run away from it? Why exactly. is nobody running into the arms of slavery? And Reagan would say the same sort of thing, right? If communism is so good, why is everybody trying to get out? Why are people dying, leaving, right? Trying to get right. to West Berlin and not trying to get into East Berlin. And so he could just see in things like yeah. that, this fundamental belief in the human desire for freedom. Um, it just plays itself out. You don't have to be an intellectual. In fact, one of the things I really like about Reagan is that he wasn't an intellectual. He was just, a, in many ways, a common sense guy. Just open your eyes and see what's going on. And you see inherently that communism is bad and um, freedom is good. 
Well, some of those themes, uh, we're talking about the tear down this wall speech was 1987, of course, but some of those themes about the importance of freedom and what it means, especially in domestic affairs, which is a big part of Reagan's presidency, of course, is um, are in his famous speech called A Time for Choosing, which he gave in 1964 in support of Barry Goldwater's candidacy. By that time, Reagan had gone from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, um, or I guess he always famously said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, it left me. But, um, and that's actually a speech that's, I think it's the last speech, the last document in this 50 core documents collection, Chris. It is, um, it is. Tell us about the importance of that speech for Reagan and his career and sort of how it, what it shows us about his mind that we might see later in this famous speech in West Berlin. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, this really launched Lincoln, uh, again, sorry, Reagan. <laughs> but, you know, Reagan had been well known as an actor, uh, fairly well known. But this really launched him into politics directly. This was his first, I think, really big step into politics. And from here, of course, you know, he had a, he had a long um, a career, first as governor of California, and then, as we know, president. But what's um, important about this speech is it, it, the first thing that has in common with the tear down this wall speech is the boldness the boldness that Reagan takes in saying things that are going to be unpleasant to certain people and yet which he thinks will be good for people to hear. People have to hear the truth of what's going on. So in 1964, Reagan looks around and what he sees is, you know, by the way, in the middle of the Cold War, you've got communism uh, that we're dealing with abroad. And what Reagan sees at home is a growing sympathy towards socialism. And, and though there are slight differences, economic differences between them in terms of economic systems, Reagan saw that at heart, they both have this, they both aim at the same thing. And that is ultimately a reduction of individual liberty uh, and, uh, and, and an increase in, um, in government by intellectual elites or government elites and little agencies or government offices far away in a capital. So for Reagan in 1964, the choice was, as he said in that famous uh, time for choosing speech, but the, the choice we need to make in 1964 is: Do we want to um, take, you know, take with with uh, with individual liberty? You know, there are some risks involved. Do we want that? Do we do we still think we have the capacity to govern ourselves as individuals on a day to day basis, or are we going to allow these these intellectual elites? who say they know what's best from us, start running our day-to-day -day lives in all sorts of minute ways. Whether it's socialism or communism, Reagan thought they're, they're just flip sides of the same coin. They both aim at that goal uh, of, of undermining individual liberty and increasing government uh, regulation of our daily lives. And with the, with the advance toward government regulation and the erosion of individual liberty, Reagan says what he's seen is, and this is a line from that 1964 speech, he says somewhere a perversion has taken place. Our God-given natural rights have been denied and taken away little by little, right? And what I love about that speech is he has the courage to say God-given or natural rights, he, he is unabashedly invoking the ideas of the American founding at a time when it is not vogue to do that, when anybody who did that sort of thing would have been ridiculed by intellectuals, our God-given natural rights have been slowly taken away from us as we go down this path toward greater and greater government regulation. That's a theme that Reagan um, continually uh, brings up in, in, in throughout his political career. 
And I, I think it's just another reflection of his, of his deep belief that what's most important is the preservation of individual liberty as opposed to greater and greater government control of our daily lives. Can I just amplify there a little bit what Chris said about the courage that it took to give this speech? I mean, uh, Jeff, you and I have spoken about this before. One of the things that's impressive, and, and I think you see this similarly in the tear down this wall speech, is 1964, as Chris mentioned. He's speaking on behalf of Barry Goldwater. And we all know that Barry, he knows, everyone knows that Barry Goldwater is about to get trounced. So I'm going to go launch my political career by speaking on behalf of a guy who's about to get the biggest whooping in U.S. political <laughs> history for the most part, right? Uh, and so it takes a kind of courage to do that. Um, and similarly in the tear down this wall speech, it takes a kind of courage to say, tear down this, I mean, tear down this wall. I mean, this, no one thought this would happen. This seems ridiculous as his speech writers wanted it gone, excised from the Right. In fact, I think speech. I've even talked with Peter Robinson, who wrote the right. speech, who yeah. said that the State Department officials kept Xing it out. Peter Robinson wrote the line in there for Reagan. They kept Xing it out and Reagan kept returning the of uh, 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 drafts with it back in. Yeah. Yeah. Reagan so said that was the, that was one, the one part of the speech he, he actually really liked was that line. <laughs> yeah. That that speech Sorry, itself is probably the best, most rhetorical part of the, of the, the entire speech, that little section, because it's uh general secretary Gorbachev and then Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, and it's uh, tear down this gate, tear down this gate, tear down this wall. And the way that the repetitions and then the way that it's Gorbachev is sort of changed at the beginning. And then gate has changed the wall at the end. I mean, the way that it breaks the pattern really adds more of a, a lot more of a punch. I mean, it really is a beautiful part. So the courage to say these things, but I think it's also a, just to, to piggyback off what Chris said a little bit ago, it's that he has a recognition that these things will win out in the end. So it actually, like, these are principles that will succeed. And so I don't know if that undercuts the courage at all, but I don't, I don't think that it does. But it's like, I have the courage to, to say what I know is true about the world and will win out in the end. So that, that's impressive to me about this speech. And, and it's given at the Brandenburg Gate. Yeah. Um, you're there in West Berlin. What's the mm -hmm. significance of the Brandenburg Gate and the Berlin Wall? Because you can actually, I think, as we saw there, you can see through it, through the wall behind him, it's glass, yeah. in, I right. think, into East Berlin. Right. So as I mentioned, I grew up in West Berlin. Uh, I visited Berlin recently, maybe two or three years ago, for the first time since I was a child. And I had never seen the Brand I'd never seen the Brandenburg Gate because on the West Berlin side, all you see is the back of the gate. So if you pull up the video of Reagan, you guys saw a little bit ago, all you see is the back. And I was like, I don't see what's that impressive. You go to the East Berlin side, now just, you know, and it's it's this gorgeous, beautiful gate. And the significance of it's one of the few places from the heart of West Berlin where you could see into East Berlin, because for most of the place, most of the ways, the wall sort of obscured your view. Now, from the west side, this is something I've showed pictures when I've taught uh, for other organizations of the wall. I think one of the misconceptions people have is that there's just a single wall. For large portions of the wall, there are actually two walls. And on the West Berlin side, you, you guys, I'm sure, have seen all the famous images. There's all the graffiti on it. Why is there graffiti? Well, because on the free side, you could go right up to the wall and draw on it. On the unfree side, they didn't want you getting near the wall. So they had to build another wall to keep you away from the wall. And in between those two walls was the dead man zone. And they would have, they would, I mean, there would be um, mines, uh, all kinds of barriers. I mean, and, and it was a hundred yards in some spots between A and B. And so I, I think even that shows you like the West wasn't like, we weren't scared. You were going to try to go East Berlin, you know, knock yourself out unless you, unless you have high classified intelligence bureau, but it was the East who had to keep a, another wall to keep you away from the wall. And so as a kid, we would go up to these stations 
Um, you could climb these towers in West Berlin and look over into East Berlin. And I mean, as a kid, you could just, I could look behind me and see a, a flourishing city. And you look out east and see, I mean, what was quite obviously a great deal of poverty. One small point before I move on, this is a small anecdote. Even as a, as a kid, it's amazing how much you can sort of reflect on these things. And this, Reagan would mention this as well. He would always distinguish the Soviets from the Russian people. And for me, that, that came clearest when I, I was looking at a guards. The East Germans always had guards on towers facing into the West. And there was a man, a soldier with an AK-47. And I'm like eight or nine. I'm like that evil guy with his AK-47. You know, he's, he's a bad communist. He wants to kill me. And he smiled and waved at me. And then I realized I was like, there's probably a lot of really good people over there. And this, I mean, if now looking back, I'm like, he's probably 18, 20 years old, probably had gotten conscripted. You know, like, and Reagan was saying, right, the whole idea of liberty is get rid of this oppressive evil tyranny and let these people be free and you'll see what they're capable of. It was, it was never about the Russian people being bad or evil. It was always about this regime being evil, I think. So that was a long way around, sorry. Yeah, well, that's a very important that's point, point actually, because because it goes to, we're starting to get some questions in now. And one, one, uh, one of our listeners wants to ask about the Soviet boycott of the Olympic games and whether that contributed to Americans' knowledge of governmental control of Soviet citizens. And, I, and it, to me, that question itself raises a larger question is, how did Reagan begin to build support for this very bold course in, in telling Gorbachev, calling on him to tear down this wall? How did he build public opinion and support for what would have been considered a very radical idea? It was a long, painful process for him. Right. That's what I was gonna, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry if you wanted to go. No, 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 no. That was, I agree. Because look, um, you know, when Reagan took office, um, it's it's interesting if you go back and, and look at the earlier part of the Cold War in the early years with uh, Presidents Truman and even Kennedy, um, they are very very vocal in condemning in their speeches, uh, condemning the the Soviet Union and communism. Uh, they're hardcore, and their their speeches are pretty pro democracy, but they're they they often pull no punches when it comes to the to the to the moral problems with the Soviet Union. And, and between Vietnam uh, uh, and then under Nixon and Carter, uh, some of that gets lost because we adopt a policy of detente, which initially is a, it's actually a policy that comes out of Kennedy's administration, which is meant to, to sort of cool things down a little bit, right? But um, in the 1970s, detente comes to mean we've got to learn to live with the existence of the Soviet Union. We've got to find ways to simply coexist peacefully with them. And by the time Reagan took office, what that meant, as in Reagan's own words, uh, a reporter asked him, what does detente mean? It means, apparently it means, you know, give the Soviet Union anything they want because we're afraid to make them angry. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And Reagan said, that's got to end. That's got to stop. We are not going to preserve freedom and end communism by simply, you know, bowing down and, and giving them anything they want out of fear. So Reagan had to, first of all, almost simultaneously, I should say, um, Build public morale, remind them of what's great about freedom and democracy. And, and he almost starting from scratch. And every time he would do these things, right? Every time he would talk about why freedom and, and democracy are worth preserving and why communism and the Soviet Union are so bad, he'd get blasted, especially by the press. He'd get blasted by people in his own cabinet, State Department, NSC, right? This is going to kill it. He's going to get us all killed. This is crazy. Why is he talking like this? Because that detente mindset had led people to simply say, the, what we've got to do is just survive, not, not you know, 
make the Soviet Union aggressive or anything like that. And Reagan said, that's not good enough. Reagan, for the first time among, among, I think, all the U.S. presidents from the beginning of the Cold War, not only wanted to sort sort of contain the Soviet Union in terms of its sphere of influence, he wanted to roll it back and get rid of it. Yeah, so that's he had to, I was just going to ask that. that. That's a that's a really important, interesting distinction for, especially for me. I'm thinking about what you just said, Chris. Like there were really two dominant positions from the end of the World War II when the Soviet Union and America start the Cold War. Right there's containment, which is the Truman Doctrine. Right, wherever Soviet communism exists, we will stop it from spreading. We'll contain it. Right. So the Korean War. Right. Attempt to c- contain communism in the north and not let them take over the whole Korean Peninsula. Right. But then there's detente, which is like, we're not going to just be aggressively containing. And as you said, we're sort of going to cool down tensions and, and give the Soviets what we think they need in order to do that. But Reagan comes in with this third view, which you call rollback. Yeah. Which seems even more yeah. radical than containment. It is. is. Is what? Yeah, it, it is radical. And a, lot of, and, and a lot of people recognize it as radical. His, his view is that through a combination of, of carrots and sticks, if you want to put it that way, right? Combination of diplomacy and a combination of maintaining mili- building and maintaining military superiority and knowing when to use the two effectively. This is what Reagan was so good at. He knew when to, he, he, he knew when to give in. He knew when to take a hard stand. He knew when to negotiate. He knew when to be diplomatic. On the one hand, he knew when to counter Soviet aggression with, uh, with a counteraction whether it be a show of force in Grenada or here or there around the world, he knew when to, he knew when to push and when to back off. But the cumulative effect of him doing this over almost seven years before this speech was that he had made it clear to the Soviet Union that we were no longer uh, the nation of detente that they were used to pushing around in the 1970s. And that, that to me is maybe the most important thing about this speech. The words, are, and I'm not trying to undermine the importance of these great words, tear down this wall. When you watch that video, what's uh, what's um, so moving is the, the, the spontaneous applause, right? When he says those words, because people weren't sure if he was going to say them. They wanted him to say it, but they weren't sure if he was going to do it. But when but when Reagan says those words, they are not only stirring words, but they are more effective because of Reagan's very prudent, you know, uh, uh, insistence uh, on the Americans uh, regaining a, a position of strength, so that we could make the Soviet Union, make Gorbachev uh, come to the table and, you know, start thinking in terms of what can we do to negotiate with the United States, right? Uh, and, and, and maybe that means reform on our, on our part. I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but right after, if you read the speech, right after the famous tear down this wall, that's exactly what Reagan says. America has, has, not, has now, I've got it pulled up in front of me, I think. Um, oh, I had it pulled up in front of me. Uh, he says, look, um, uh, Ten years ago, the Soviets challenged the Western Alliance with grave new threats. Uh, the Western Alliance has committed itself to to countermeasures. He points out right after that tear down this wall line, how the United States has has is now in a position that it's not going to back down. It has maintained a position a position of strength, and it will build its strength. That that lights a fire under people. Words light fires, but certain you know other practical considerations can also move people into making reform. So again, I'm not trying to take away from the power of the words, but it's the combination of the words with link, uh, with Reagan's, uh, you know, prudential policies over seven years that really affect the change that we see happen very quickly in the two years following the speech. 
sorry for talking so much. <laughs> well, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, one small point is that there, there had been some talk of rollback under Truman and even Ike, but it seems to have entirely gone away, I guess, in 1956 with the Hungarian uprising or whatever. But, but just to Chris's point about how he would do the hammer and the carrot, you know, he would use the language of the evil empire, but then he would rush down the stairs and put a coat on Gorbachev and he would make jokes. with, And so, I mean, I, you know, when I call someone evil, that's sort of the end of the, they don't want to talk to me anymore. And, and what, what amazes me is his ability to use this very principled language, language that would insult potentially even the target, but then also the way that he would do it optimistically is sort of impressive to me. Like it's, it's a certain type. I mean, it's easy to criticize people, call people evil, but it's hard to do that and then still extend an olive branch, still be friendly, still sound optimistic. And so just like in his actions, he seemed to, I mean, his principles were clear, but the principles dictated certain actions in certain circumstances and others and others. And I think rhetorically the same thing, his, his rhetoric changed based on the circumstances. Uh, that's a great, that's a really important point because, um, you know, when Reagan took office, he had to deal with three um, Soviet presidents or yeah. general secretaries, right? And they were tough. They were hard, old, old line, you know, tough nosed old liners. So he's dealing with Brezhnev and and Dropov and um, who's the other one? Chernyenko. Um, Chernyenko, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and then when he meets Gorbachev, Gorbachev, by the way, used to be it uh, was originally a pretty hardline Stalinist, but he in the 1970s had um, been allowed by the Soviet Union to take several trips to the West, you know, sort of fact finding trips. But you know, um, and and um, Gorbachev. Um, saw some good in the West. Uh, he, he saw some of the things Reagan actually saw. So when Gorbachev became general secretary and then president, Reagan, I think, realized, again, this is Reagan's recognizing the timing of things and the opportunity of things. He saw in Gorbachev somebody who um, could be worked with and could be reasoned right. with. So, so you mentioned, you know, the, there's a kind of friendship. I, I don't want to push it too far. Sure. But a kind of friendliness, at least, that develops between the two because they came to have a kind of fundamental respect for each other as human beings. And Reagan took great advantage of that. Yeah, for sure. So, but yeah. again, that's, that's Reagan's, you know, ability to, to, to see those opportunities and know when to push and when to back off and when to work with somebody and when to, you know, when to, you know, lower the hammer, but. Well, I mean, it's interesting you're taught, you're saying that because yeah, I think about um, statesmen in a, a course of the, the, across the course of American history, statesmen like George Washington, for example, and some of the qualities that a statesman have. And when Reagan died, I never, I remember this, when he died, a lot of people who had opposed him pretty strongly uh, when he was president, even those folks said he did see something. He had a clear sight into some reality about the Soviet Union, at least, and maybe more things. And they even called him a statesman. And I'm, I'm curious from your point of view, if you think Reagan deserves, if you look at a speech like Tear Down This Wall and his, uh, his A Time for Choosing and then his administration, it's a big question, I know, but do you think he deserves the title of statesman? I'll start. I, you know, you mentioned um, as we sort of prepared for this discussion, those, I knew this would be a question, so I gave it some thought and one of my answers will be like, I think that it often takes a little bit of distance and time to be able to reflect back and decide whether or not someone is a statesman. So the, like you said, these people who had been his partisan enemies subsequently could, could sort of 
take a more broad view. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Martin Luther King was a statesman, right? And we've probably been saying that for 20 years. And so how long has, has enough time passed? And I think I think it has. And I, and I think that one of the things that you put your finger on a moment ago that I the sort of, I don't understand this part of being a statesman, and I admit this, Churchill had it, Reagan seems to have had it. It's this ability to see the way that politics unfolds. Like, how was Churchill the only guy who sees what the Nazis will end up in? And he's jumping up and down and screaming and yelling about it, and no one's listening to him. But some, somehow he saw what it was. Uh, part of it was simply he had read Mein Kampf, and he took seriously the Nazis' own words in a way that a lot of Westerners sort of said, oh, you can't take these things seriously. And I think that Reagan similarly took communism seriously. Look at what it says it's going to do. These are its principles, right? So I think that comprehension quality, maybe this is a part of prudence, which is something that I think is really important for a statesman, someone who sort of grasps what's going on. A kind of courage is probably requisite for a statesman, uh, as Frederick Douglass tells us about Abraham Lincoln, a willingness to take risks, like the speeches, the two speeches we've spoken about today. Uh, and then justice, right? Sort of a, he's got a clear principle of justice, which as if it hasn't become clear, I mean, he used two different words for it in just the snippet we heard, it's freedom for Reagan. Justice is freedom. He's also said liberty. The, the part that seems to be missing from all that is there are a lot of people who are single-mindedly devoted to justice who, who lack this quality that Chris and I have been talking about, this flexible or compromising character, this ability to sort of let the principles guide you, but to move back and forth in certain ways, depending upon the situation. So when should I be harsh toward the Soviets? When should I reach out and extend an olive branch? And in fact, should I, yeah, yeah. And in fact, Greg, wasn't Reagan criticized yeah. by people, uh, including in his own party and even in his own administration, some of them for sometimes being too easygoing on Gorbachev? Yes. How, how yes. did Reagan handle that? Well, I think what Chris already indicated that he Reagan saw that Gorbachev was different than the pre the three previous premiers with whom he had, had worked. And he saw this guy might actually help. And so I'm going to treat him differently. I can put the pressure on him here, here, and here. I mean, he didn't simply always concede to what Gorbachev wanted, that far from it. But I can work with him on these other things. And for me, like what's the Lincoln line? The line that Lincoln says about statesmanship, Chris, about the star and the swamp. Can you you probably know it by heart, right? But this is statesmanship, what, right? About the where you can see you can see the North Star, which represents the principle, but yeah, the so you know the direction you need to go, but it doesn't tell you how to navigate the swamps and the and the forests and these sorts of things, right? Right. Yeah, that and that's that's a great. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, just that's what states. That's part of what statesmanship is to me. I think seeing the political principle that needs to be pursued, but then what looks to the outsider to be sort of indecisiveness or changing is actually just figuring out the best route to get there on the, on the basis of circumstances. I mean, Jefferson has some notes about this, right? Practical politics means you have to sort of bend in certain ways on certain things. So. Yes. Yeah, can I just add, I mean, those are, that's a really great description of statesmanship, um, Greg. And I would just, again, I'm just, so I'm not saying anything you didn't say. I'm just maybe putting it a little saying bit it better. So no, I wouldn't say better, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look, it, the two, um, the two fundamental things a statesman has to have is an understanding of justice. And I, I don't want to say just the good because everybody thinks they know what the good is, but the good isn't always good. But they have to have a dedication to, to justice. But they have to know how to pursue justice within the limits of the possible because we right. live in a world with limited where circumstances don't always allow us to simply do the right thing. Or we tend to think that today, right? I mean, this yeah. seems, to be a, seems to be a view out there today which says, you just do the right thing. 
Well, sometimes simply doing the right thing can lead to worse consequences. Right. And what's, uh, that, uh, what's that famous Latin phrase? Let justice be done, even if the world falls or something like this. Yeah. Right? That's, that's Garrison's view of justice, right? Exactly. I don't care what happens. Let's just pursue justice. Right. Yeah. So a statesman has to know what the right thing to do is, but also has to recognize what can be done under the certain circumstances, under the present limitations. And so the only, th- the only thing I was going to, you know, add maybe, uh, from that, as you were saying, Greg, is uh, I, I love your description of a statesman. If I were to to um, give the rank of statesmanship to the three highest, I would give it to Washington, Lincoln, and Reagan, but only because they're not wow. say they're the only statesmen, like Martin Luther King, as you were saying, and you know Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, I would include right, right as a right. statesman. But 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 uh, Washington, Lincoln, and Reagan for me because they exemplified, they exhibited those qualities under the perhaps the most dire of circumstances. Yeah, in a crisis. Right? The creation of a nation, the preservation of a nation, and getting us through a Cold War. Right. Um, and, and and a wrong decision on part could have led to the very destruction of the of, of the nation, right? Can I just have one small the point nation. there? Like, as impressive as this is, I think this, I think this cuts against how impressive Reagan is to people. But if they thought about it, it would make him more impressive. So like Washington, how many, how many lives lost? Lincoln, how many lives lost? The, the great victory of the Cold War. I mean, it happened. I mean, there were proxy wars, but it happened peacefully. Who would have foreseen that the Cold War could end without a hot war? It's, it's just, it's amazing. I think yeah. it's, it's almost, it's more impressive if you think about it. We won a war without firing a shot. Isn't this what yeah. Thatcher said? Something like that? But to see that make again, as you're saying, that's what yeah. made what link. Uh, sorry, what boy, I'm so sorry. What Reagan? <laughs> there's so many great parallels. What yeah. Reagan did even more remarkable because Reagan did not want a hot war. He did not want a yeah. shooting war. Right, right, right. But he knew that sometimes we had to put our, ourselves in a position to be able to engage in those kinds of wars, right? In, in order to bring about the kind of peace that we hope to see, right? Yeah. Because because you can't win. We were not going to. Uh, we were not going to eliminate the Soviet Union um, through a position of weakness and by a, a simple position of conciliation, submission. Right. So but that there's a da- there's a real danger in that. And Reagan was, a, you know, under a lot of pressure, but he never showed it. Uh, you know, I remember watching him on TV, you know, growing up in the 80s. I grew up in the 70s, too, but I remember the 80s more. Um, but, you know, I remember watching him on TV and it didn't dawn on me till I was older, just how big the the burden was on his shoulders through all of this. But when I would watch him on TV or listen to his speeches in the eighties, there was always this sense of calm. And there's a, I hate to kind of put it this way, but you felt kind of warm and fuzzy when Reagan would speak because you felt like everything was going to be okay. But, you know, inside himself, he had to have been dealing with so much pressure uh, because the wrong decision on his part in any one of these, you know, these, um, these circumstances could have been disastrous. So right. that's why I would rank him among the top three states. Yeah, that's very good. Very well, that's a very interesting uh, judgment, Chris and, and Greg. It, <laughs> it makes me think, well, no, that statesmanship uh, of Reagan, because as you know, some people today, even those in the Republican Party and even conservatives have argued that Reagan, that America really needs to move on from Reagan, that, that he was important in his own time, but the challenges that faced America today are just, the times have changed and we really don't want, we, Reaganism, as they say, is no longer important to inspire or guide us. It's time to move on. What do you think of that argument? 
one of my favorite political philosophers says that human beings quickly adjust to good times and can therefore become very dissatisfied with even the best of circumstances. And I suspect that people who there's a lot of pessimism about America right now. And I think that a lot of that pessimism reflects a lack of historical awareness of the serious alternatives in today at, in the 21st century, in the modern world, what are the serious alternatives? And when you look around the world, the serious alternatives are something like authoritarianism. And, and that's, that's remains if human beings are these liberty loving creatures, as Chris says, we are, as Reagan said, we are, as Lincoln said, we are, as Jefferson said, we are. And as I believe we are, I have a hard time thinking that uh, the Reagan's principles that are aimed at promoting that kind of regime have fallen out of favor. I think we don't realize how good we have it. And I think we also probably, uh, for, for reasons that I don't entirely understand, lack the moral clarity of seeing other regimes as, as fundamentally bad. Um, and I, 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 don't, I can't quite explain that. I mean, probably get a little too far beyond and I'd start talking about German philosophers and Chris would come across the hall and slap me. Um, to doing so. But I, I suspect that we've become, we've lost confidence in the goodness of our regime and our regime is good. I mean, I, people who, if you've seen other regimes, like it's, it's just hard to deny. I think, I think that's you, a big part of it. You we, see the goodness of the regime. I'm sorry. You see the goodness in the regime in the people uh, right. of the regime. And, and not to, uh, I'm not saying Americans are better than everybody else, but I've heard so many stories of people from abroad who say, um, you know, just take the American military, right? Soldiers in the U.S. military, uh, you know, if they're sent into a place uh, to assist with a NATO operation or whatever it might be, the decency with which they treat other people, right? The people of a region right. is su in such contrast to the way they're treated by, you know, soldiers from other nations, uh, you know, that are it just, it re that the, the goodness of the regime it reveals itself through the goodness of the people in so many ways. Um, but we, but we don't see it because again, because we're, you know, we're, we're in it. We're, you know, we can't see the things that are so close to us right? sometimes because yeah. of perhaps that lack of perspective. Yeah. Can I just say too, Greg, so you brought up the, this, this idea of history. And again, I won't go into German philosophy, sure, either, sure. but you know, there are two views of history. There are more than that, right. but two general views. One is that history advances and we move beyond the past and we're headed towards something better, some kind of utopia. And by the way, this view of, of history is what I think has caught so many people today off guard with regard with regard to the actions of Ukraine. Putin and Russia, mm -hmm. because we thought we've moved beyond this. This is 2022. This isn't the 20th century anymore. We've moved beyond the Cold War. Um, there's the, another view of history. I think the view that Reagan had, which is that, yes, we can make progress, but human beings are always going to be human beings in some fundamental way. Some things actually never change. So as you were saying, Greg, sometimes we um, very quickly get used to, to, to comfortable times and good times. And we think that's the way it is because we now have moved into some, you know, right. future phase of history. But I think that one of the great lessons we can learn from Reagan's um, approach to dealing with the Soviet Union is he himself learned how to deal with the Soviet Union from a careful study of history, a careful understanding of what human beings tend to be like. And so, you know, it allowed him to um, always have this optimism in him that to see the good in human beings, but he wasn't so naive as to think or to overlook the possibility of human beings, you know, doing bad things. We always have to be aware of that possibility. And so I think that's something we could learn from Reagan. Sorry, Greg, I, go ahead. No, I just want to, I would, 
I just, I mean, that's such a great point. So the, the second view of history is that, yes, we can have good government. Yes, we can have good politics, but it's historically contingent. It is in no way determined. And it's, I mean, there's this famous Reagan quote, right? Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, right? Like it, it's contingent and therefore it takes work and it takes, it takes work by people. It takes work by the people sort of defending their liberty, but also work by statesmen like Ronald Reagan himself. Like we, we can have good government, but we have to, if we can keep it, we have to keep it. Um, yeah. yeah. That's why education is so important. Every generation yeah. must be educated right. in the principles of liberty, right? As, as right. Reagan said. Well, and it's, it strikes me that if you think about Reagan's um, farewell address, right? And he even says in 1989, as he's leaving office, gives a televised address to the nation. And he says, you know, there's a history of presidents giving warnings, which goes all the way back to uh, George Washington's farewell address, right? Giving warnings. And it's really interesting to me, both in what you both said there, um, Reagan's warning is, he says, we've rediscovered patriotism. He says, I'm, I'm most proud of two things, right? Because the Soviet Union hadn't yet fallen, right? Before he left office, he said, I'm proud of reviving our economy and making it a place of prosperity and flourishing. And he said, I'm proud of the revival of patriotism in the country, that the morale of Americans has risen again. But he says, but the danger is that that patriotism won't continue because it's not informed patriotism. And he says, my warning is that we can't neglect the education of the next generation in the history and principles of this country. It's, it's fascinating to That's me that both, you, both of you sort of make that same point here that Reagan makes in his farewell address. Yeah, he's right. I mean, if we've, you know, it's amazing what a span of 20 years, let alone 10 years, but 20 years, right? Uh, will, how much we forget as a people. Right. Um, again, which is why I, I really think the study of history is so important because we can learn, um, you know, from the past about what's possible in the future. Uh, good and bad, uh, but but we but we can we can very quickly become, you know, especially in a society of prosperity, we can very quickly become so comfortable with it that we think the virtues, right, the qualities of of patriotism, citizenship, hard work, industriousness, that that build uh, that build the society into such a good place are no longer necessary. We can lose sight of that, Absolutely. and Reagan was very aware of that. So. All the more reason these things need to be taught to every generation so that we can pass down um, uh, freedom and liberty and prosperity to future generations, to our children and our grandchildren and the grandchildren and children of other citizens, right? So, Well, thank you all so much. This has been just incredibly um, uh, invigorating and insightful to get it, to take a moment today on the, on the 35th anniversary of this speech to reflect on the speech itself, and on the man who gave that speech. I want to thank everybody for joining us today for this uh, webinar. Thank you for all those who submitted questions. Sorry that we didn't get to all of your questions. Uh, so many good ones, but such a great conversation today with Chris and Greg. Just so you know, you'll all be sent a link to a recording of this webinar. So please send it on to your friends, colleagues, children, grandchildren, um, that uh, I really would appreciate you getting the word out. It's great for us to study statesmen like Ronald Reagan to remember some of those principles, remember some of that history. Uh, we really believe at Ashbrook that when you study America and its principles in history, 
you can uh, get an understanding of uh, an insight for today, but also renew your own understanding of what it means to be an American. We think that's what our mission is and our purpose here. So thank you for joining us in that mission. Thanks again to Greg and Chris for a wonderful conversation. Uh, it, it, it's hopeful to see what a person like Reagan could accomplish uh, as a statesman back in very challenging times. And we all, as I always say, that kind of hope is so essential and so important. So to all of you out there, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.